Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We've been traveling through the journey to the promised land, and we're getting there. You know, it took them 40 years to get there. It might take us 40 weeks, but I don't know, <laughs> maybe less. <laughs> Thank God, there's so much for us. You know, it is, um, we are people with a new covenant, right? Amen. We are people who are so blessed to be on this side of the cross. I think about that often, you know. I think about that often, how blessed I am to be on this side of the cross. Thank God for this. Thank God. But you know, the book of Hebrews is is pretty clear about this, that we are living in the perfected covenant, the the perfect covenant. Jesus is the mediator and the high priest. But even in the Mosaic time, even in this period, it was good. It just wasn't perfect, right? And the thing that changed, thank God, the thing that changed was not God. The thing that changed was the perfect blood of Jesus changing us. See, God changed, and when I mean, God didn't change, God's always been the same yesterday, today, and forever, but his covenant changed. We have a new covenant, a new high priest through Jesus Christ. So we can look at this, and we can say, well, thank God, the ground's not going to open up, and I'm going to be swallowed. Thank God for that. We do see, you know, the scripture says in the New Testament more than once that these things happen to them as examples for us. And so we look at this and we see examples of faith. We see examples of humanity, of, of how, uh, how people are prone to just, you know, see, see the great move of God and then, and then question it over here. And we also see examples of, of God's faithfulness over and over again. I hope that when you walk away from this, you're going to be brave and bold to say, I'm going to trust God. Even I'm, I'm going to step into the, the, not just the border of the promised land, but I'm going to step into the promised land, uh, step into the things that he's called me into, step into the things that he's placed in front of me, knowing that uh, the God who goes before us and the God that goes behind us is greater than any obstacle. If we would turn our Bibles to the book of Exodus, and uh, we're going to move all the way to chapter uh, 18, or sorry, 17. Last thing that we encountered was this uh, this moment in or this this time in the wilderness where they discovered manna raining down from heaven and feeding them and and learned how to rely on God. Learned how to rely on God in such a way that they didn't feel that they needed to store up uh, for the next day. you know, once manna fell, they didn't keep more than they needed for that day. And the reason was because God was teaching them that they could rely on him every day, not to worry about tomorrow because today he's going to take care of you. Now, as we talked about last, last time we were in the, in the scripture here, uh, that was a foundation for what he was going to teach them in the promised land. See, in the wilderness, they learned how to live on manna so that they could know that God, the God of today, the God that provides today will be the God that provides tomorrow. So don't, don't worry about storing up extra just in case he doesn't come through. He's going to come through. But that was a foundation for what he would do in the promised land where he, they would have abundance. God said to them, when you get to the promised land, you will have more than enough. You will have abundance. You will have crops here. You have all this. When you're there, don't forget what I taught you here. And that is so important. You see, it wasn't two different things. It wasn't, it wasn't like there was a time of manna and a time of the promised land, and they were, they were supposed to live two different ways. What they learned with manna, they were supposed to take to the promised land, to trust every day in God's provision. You see, in, in, in the wilderness, they weren't allowed to have storehouses of manna. 
If they tried, the manna went bad. But when they came into the promised land, God said, I'll bless your storehouses, right? So they were supposed to have storehouses in the promised land. But your storehouse was not to become your God. Your storehouse was not to become your provision. Your storehouse was just a storehouse. God would bless it. God would lay his hand on it. It would be a place of provision for you and for the people around you. They were commanded to take care of the orphan and the widow. They were commanded to take care of the foreigner that came into their midst. And yet the storehouse was never meant to be a security blanket in case God just stopped coming through right? It's the same way right now. Some of you, God has put you in a position where you have money saved up, or you have extra land. You have these things, and it's important that you realize that those things aren't bad as long as those things don't have you, right? As long as they don't become your God. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Tomorrow, if everything failed, if the economy crashed, if everything just went away, what would, I mean, when, when you think of that thought, if everything going away, everything crashing, what makes you feel better? Does it make you feel better know you, knowing you've got a lot saved up, you've got a bunker somewhere? Or does it make you feel better knowing that the same God that saved you today is the same God that will save you tomorrow? That's what's got to make you feel better. God, made, God told Joseph, I want you to store up in the years of abundance so that in the years of famine, you'll have more than enough. If God tells you to store up, then obey God, store up. But that's not your salvation, right? That's not your salvation. Your salvation is in the Lord, all right? So we're going to move into another thing that they're going to learn in the wilderness. See, with every obstacle that they're coming against, every new situation, the Bible says, God says, I'm testing you in the wilderness or I'm proving you in the wilderness. But really what he was doing was proving himself to them. He was recalibrating their way of thinking because, as I said last week, they've come out of Egypt and they are, for centuries, they've been slaves. And so that's how they think. They think like slaves. God is using every single instance of his provision, of his miracles, of his wonders to break them out of the slavery thinking, to snap them out of it, and to begin to teach them how they can trust the Lord their God. But it's slow going. Because every time he teaches them, they kind of revert back to the old ways. And, and God is thankfully merciful and faithful. He keeps going. Here's what happens in verse, chapter 17. Verse 1, it says, And the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by the stages from the wilderness of sin. Now, don't read too much into that. That is the Hebrew word sin, which does not mean sin. Does that make sense? Because <laughs> I know somebody's going get to a, get a message from the Lord. See, we've been in the wilderness of sin. Oh, the sin. Yeah, but that, it's just a name. It's, it doesn't mean sin. Our word sin comes from a different language. Uh, anyways, let's not get into that. So <laughs> the wilderness of sin. You know what? If God gives you a message, you preach it. Praise God. According to the command of the Lord of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now? Now, this is the old familiar song. This is, the, this is on their classics radio. They know this one. Why have you brought us out here to kill us? That's their favorite, right? Boys, things are getting hard. What are we going to do? Sing that song. A one, a two, a three, a four. Why have you brought us out here to kill us? Doing not enough graves in Egypt. Like, they know that one. They bring it up every time there's an opportunity. It's their old refrain. 
Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? If you remember, when they, when they came to the sea and the Egyptian army was behind them, what did they say? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Did you bring us out here to die by the Egyptians? When they got to the water that was bitter, oh, wasn't it okay if we were just to die in Egypt? Did you need us to die out here? When they got to a place where they didn't have meat to eat, oh, did God just want us to starve to death in the wilderness? I mean, they've got nothing new to say. Why have you brought us out from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's amazing to me. The language that God has used with them has been the language of a father and a cherished child. He said to them more than once, you are my firstborn. You're my kids, right? But they're still thinking like slaves, like orphans. He's constantly said, I'm your father. I'm your caretaker. And they keep saying, are you trying to kill us? See, their God, this may seem weird, but for many of them, their God has been the Egyptians. And you might say, that sounds crazy because they were slaves to the Egyptians, but that is what slavery does to our heads. We hate the one that's oppressing us, but we, at the same time, view them as our God, you know? The Egyptians are oppressing us, but at least we know they're going to give us food. The Egyptians are oppressing us, but at least we know they're going to protect us from the enemies. That's unfortunate, but I've known people who've been slaves to all sorts of things, and the very thing you're a slave to often becomes your God. They haven't learned how to, so, so their God has mistreated them. Their God, the Egyptians, their God, their God, whatever they made their God, their idols, they have mistreated them, and they're learning to trust God, the Father, Yahweh. They're learning to trust him, but it is it's not coming easy. See, Moses has spent a significant amount of time away from the Israelites. All his life, he he grew up with the Egyptians, but then he went out and for, for decades spent time away from Egypt, away from his own people. He spent time in the wilderness and he learned how to trust God. But even he had questions. When God said, I'm gonna send you, he said, I don't know, I can't speak. I, I don't who what am I gonna do? So maybe we can have some little compassion, but we still see this around, around our own circles. We see people who trust God. And then in those moments of tension, in the moments of crisis, what's going to come up is who do you think God is? What do you think the character of God is? You see, if you have a revelation of God is my father, and, and, and some of you had to totally revamp what father is, right? Because in our society, the majority of people don't have a good view of what a father is even what a mother is, what a, what a godly parent is. And so people have to relearn that a father, a God the father means he's going to take care of me, means that he won't harm me, means that he loves me, means that he's my provider, means that when he disciplines me, it's not it's a sign that he's rejected me, but embraced me, that he's, he's, he's making me more like him, like Jesus with his disciples. You see, Jesus disciplined the disciples. Disciple is the root word of discipline. And when you see Jesus interact with the disciples, they never doubted he loves us, did they? They never took his words as you're rejecting me, you want me to go away, you don't like me anymore, you don't love me anymore. I mean, it can't have been easy all the time, but when he corrected them, they knew he loves us. It's an amazing thing to me that one of the verses, you know, and we know the context of the verse is much broader. 
In Jeremiah 29, the, the, the whole context is of, of a group of, of, of Jews that are being taken from their homeland, and they're having prophets telling them, you'll be back home in a couple years. In no time at all, you'll be back home. And Jeremiah is telling them, no, you're going to have to be in Babylon for a while. So settle down, get married, have kids, plant gardens, and I'll bless Babylon because you're in it. And then he says this, but I got a plan to take you back home after 70 years. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you future hope. Plans to to prosper you, not to harm you. What's been amazing to me is how much that verse is quoted by people that just got born again as the verse that changed their life. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Because, and I, I, it just comes up, so many people I talk to that you say, what, what changed in you? And, and they'll bring up that verse. And you know what I think the reason is? Because that's the moment that they realized God loves me. And he's not out to hurt me. I mean, I, I'm amazed at how powerful that one verse has been to so many people because it has recalibrated what they thought of God. So many people have an idea of God that he is self-serving. That, and he had every right to be self-serving. He's, he is God, but he's not. He's not self-serving. He is love. He is love. And so we, I, I'm amazed and I am, I am thrilled when people say, this verse changed my life. And so many people have. Because it's a revelation that God is not against me. And that is a huge stepping stone to everything else, isn't it? That's what the Israelites are having to learn in the wilderness. God is not trying to kill us in 10 different ways. (laughs) But they still don't believe it. Every time something hard happens, is this how you want to kill us? I knew this was too good to be true. God, you are the ultimate prankster. You made us think for a bit that we were going to live or we're going to survive or things were going to be okay, but I knew you were just, uh, you just, you just getting our hopes up so you could kill us in the worst possible way. God, do you want to kill us out here? And this is what Moses' response is. Moses cries out to the Lord, to Yahweh, and says, what shall I do to this people? I find it interesting that he doesn't say, what shall I do with these people? He's like, what shall I do to them? <laughs> a prayer that many a leader has prayed at some point in their life. <laughs> what, do I, what can I do to these people? Can I, I mean, show me my boundaries here. What can I do to them? What shall I do to these people? He says, a little more and they will stone me. And Moses isn't being dramatic. He's not saying, you know, he's not trying to get God to, to, you know, feel sorry for him. He's being serious, and he's, he's exactly right. A little more, and they will stone him. These guys had, I'm sure they carried their favorite rocks around, like they're ready, because several times in, in this story, throughout their lives, they prepare to stone Moses and whoever happens to be standing next to him. So when he says, a little more, and they're going to stone me, he's not being a crybaby. He's being for real. They're going to kill him. In verse 5, Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff with you which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? 
So how do they test the Lord? They ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? They questioned his faithfulness. They questioned his goodness. Let me ask you a question. The Bible clearly says they had no water. Is it wrong for you to ask God for water when you have no water? No. Does anybody here think it's wrong to ask God for water if you had no water? We all think that that's perfectly reasonable, isn't it? It's not that they ask God for water. It's how they ask God for water. See, they didn't ask God saying, God, you're our provider. We know you'll provide. Give us water. No, they began to rebel against God. They began to question. You see, they, they, instead of asking in faith or asking in thanksgiving or asking in expectation, they, they didn't ask. They cried out, God has abandoned us again. They questioned the very character of God, the nature of God. In fact, these two words, masa, simply means I mean, it means to, to test, to prove, but not a good kind of proof. You know, there's many times God says, prove me. Just go ahead and check it out. Check, check me out. What I say is true. But in this case, that's not, the, not what they're doing. They're testing him. They're provoking him. And the next word that, that, that he calls it is, is Merabah, which means a place of strife. And the strife isn't between the people. It's between the people and God. This is a place of rebellion. And this is kind of the story of their existence. This is what they do continually. Is they, they don't just question, God, why isn't there water? They question God himself. God, do you want us to die? God, have you trying to kill us? God, are you even with us anymore? So I want to ask this question because we're here 2016. And we run across some issues where we're going to have to face the same questions, the same tests of our heart. Which is, what do you do? When panic mode begins to set in, and what you expect to be in front of you is not in front of you. The first foundation of, of everything needs to be that God is good, and God is our Father. So, one of the things we got to know is that He's able, right? The whole of Christianity, in fact, beyond Christianity, into other world religions, people believe that God is strong. God is mighty, God is able. You don't meet a lot of people who believe in God that believe God is weak. The question's not whether God can, the question is always, will he, isn't it? Every, I mean, you never talk to anybody and say, can God do this or can God do that and have somebody say, I don't think he can, I think that's beyond his ability. Nobody says that. The question is not his ability but his faithfulness. Will he? Our question that we always have to answer, is God able? That's an easy yes. But the other question you have to ask, is God faithful? Will he keep his word? That should also be an easy yes. But for many, that's their point of stumbling. That's their point of tripping over it. Because we've measured the faithfulness of God by how we expected things to happen. I've told you many times my example, my, my own analogy of how it happened in my life was, you know, the way I put it was I, I would see God paint a picture and I would snatch the paintbrush from his hand and say, I recognize it and I'd finish it for him. And then I'd be disappointed it didn't turn out like I thought it was going to turn out. The Bible says that the Israelites were disappointed because of the way. 
It was the way to get to the promised land that, that, that disappointed them and discouraged them. And so many times it's, it's, you start with the idea, yes, God is faithful, but unless that's rooted in you that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is mighty, if that's rooted in you, even in the times where you don't see the immediate response, you know it's here, it's coming, I have it by faith, I am taken care of. And so many people make ridiculously silly decisions out of panic. And we see it all the time. People move because of panic. People quit their jobs because of panic. People get out of relationships or get into relationships because of panic. People make decisions that they never should make because they panic and begin to question, is God still with me? Is God going to do this or do I need to do it myself? Here they question and say, is the Lord among us or not? That's what the scripture says is the moment that everything broke. They began to question, is God with us anymore? And you might say, well, I've never questioned that. Many people, I mean, most people would never admit to questioning that. We don't question that in theory, but we question it in practice. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you ask a theology student, is God with you? Does God ever leave you? And they say, no, 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 no. But then they say things like, well, you know, I prayed for healing, it didn't come, so I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And they may say, I know God is with me, but they've stopped believing that God is with them. I've told you the story, and please forgive me for repeating it, but I love it. That story of Niagara Falls, where the, the tightrope walker, and this is a true story, the tightrope walker, one of the most famous, he's so famous I've forgotten his name. Um, <laughs> he's walking across, look it up, Google is your friend. Uh, don't Google it now though. He was walking across the tightrope and this guy would do crazy things. He'd cook eggs on the tightrope. He'd do all sorts of stuff. Back when they allowed you to do stupid things like that over Niagara Falls and um, no safety net, no, no tether. He's just doing this. So he comes across and there's, a, there's a, a large group of people and you never know who in the group of people there is cheering for him to succeed or cheering for him to plummet to his death. You never know who's who in that crowd. There's probably a few of both. And he comes over and he says, do you believe that I can take a man on my back over the falls? And the crowd goes crazy. Yeah, yeah, we believe. May I have a volunteer? And the crowd goes quiet and... Nobody makes eye contact. <laughs> See, that's a guy offering to risk somebody's life, but I've seen the very same response in church, like just for like, how many of you believe that, you know, if, if the Lord put a, put a word on your heart, you could get up and speak it? Yeah, I believe that. How many of you got one? No, you know. But that's what happens. So he says, can I get a volunteer? Nobody volunteers. After what I imagine seemed like an eternity of awkward silence, his manager says, okay, I'll do it. Because nobody volunteered. See, everybody said, we believe. That's what church is like, right? We all know how to say, we believe. Thank God for it. We should start with saying, we believe. Don't, don't be condemned for saying, I believe, right? I mean, start with that. Start, the, if you don't believe, Keep talking like you do until you do, right? I mean, fix your heart. I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about letting your mouth be the, the rudder, as James calls it. But, but, so don't feel condemned, but let's move past words and into, into heart, into deed, right? So the whole crowd said, we believe you can, but nobody believed it enough to put their own, heart, their own life on the line. 
And that's really the question here. Everybody will say, yeah, God's with us. God is our provider. But that's not really tested when someone asks you the question. That's tested in the moment where you begin, you feel panic setting in, you feel anxiety setting in. Jesus dealt with this, this anxiety, didn't he? This worry. And he commanded us not to worry with the same force. I don't see why it's any different from God saying, do not kill. A command of Jesus is a command of God. And a command of God is a command of God. Am I right about that? So if Jesus says, don't worry, don't you think it's just as strong as don't steal? I'd say so. Don't you think it's just as strong as love your neighbor? I believe it is. I believe it, I don't rank what Jesus said in, 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 in reference of, well, I believe this a little more than this. Well, to be honest, I do, but I try not to. <laughs> I, I, try, I try to catch myself when I do. But he said, don't worry. Wor- be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. And he painted us a picture, didn't he? Of how the birds don't worry about what they're going to eat, about how the lilies don't worry about what they're going to be clothed with. He said, you're worth much more to God than they are. Which is an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. But God values humanity more than any other living thing on the planet. And you're worth much more than they are. Don't you believe your father will take care of you? He said, you seek the kingdom and all of his righteousness, and all of those things will be added to you. What a great statement. So he doesn't just command you not to worry. He gives you the solution for it, doesn't he? He gives you the answer to it. He doesn't just, I mean, God never just gives you a command without giving you the grace to carry it out, without giving you the, the, the way to do it. He doesn't just give you a command and say, <laughs> wiggle helplessly along, just do your best. So this is what he says. Here they tested him, and, and it is by the mercy of God they're not all consumed at this moment. We're going to finish the story, and then I want to go one, one other place. Well, we actually did finish the story. They, they named the place. Wouldn't you hate for a place to be named after your dumb decisions? <laughs> this is the field where I fought with my wife. So forever and eternity, they call this field the field where Jonathan fought with his wife. I, the field of strife, the field of pig-headed stubbornness. I, I'm glad that we don't do that. You think of some of these guys get their names in the Bible for all the wrong reasons. Poor guys live, uh, live uh, you know, 70 good years and they do something stupid and it gets up in here for the rest of eternity. We remember them for that moment. But they remembered this place just as they remembered the place where God had proven themselves, himself faithful. They do what they've done before. And, and what I lo- love about this is that God could have said, no water for you. You asked me in the wrong way. But bigger than their rebellion and bigger than their murmuring and bigger than their grumbling was a covenant that God made with them. Not just the covenant, the Mosaic covenant hadn't been given yet. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. I will bless you and I will bless your descendants and I'll make them great. And through your descendants, all of the people of the earth will be blessed. And he was speaking about Jesus. So God, in his great mercy, is holding on to a covenant that these guys aren't, are vaguely familiar with and are not really holding on to them, themselves. And in this moment, he shows his great capacity for mercy. Nobody dies here, but it is a, a scar on the record. And it's something we can learn from. 
This is what the scripture says. Learn from their mistakes. Don't do it. Don't doubt. Don't quarrel with God. Don't test the Lord like your forefathers did. And I want to bring you to this familiar scripture in Philippians 4. Many of you be able to quote this from memory, and, and that's a good thing. Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, rejoice, and this is a subject for another time, but rejoice is, is, is not supposed to be a response to happy circumstances. Rejoice is a command. Rejoice is you telling yourself to rejoice, right? This is not an involuntary spasm where you just start being happy because things are just that good. Rejoice means you're choosing something. I am choosing to act in joy. Now, there's always something to rejoice about, isn't there? Paul wrote this in in the worst prison Rome had. He wrote this while people were dying all around him. He wrote this in probably the most depressing of circumstances. Even in this letter, he asks whether I should live or whether I should die. And he seriously considers going to be with Jesus because he says it'll be far better. And yet in this letter, he uses the word joy and rejoice more than any other book in the Bible. Here's a man who knows where his joy is found. Happiness comes from, the, from our, our English word happiness comes from an old English word hap. You ever heard happenstance? Something happens. What is that talking about? It's talking about circumstances, things that happen. So happiness is, is based around outside circumstances. Joy is a much deeper thing. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fountain within you that can't be quenched no matter what happens. So he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, it's so important. I will say rejoice. Then he says in verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Those two things go together. You may not know how they go together. But that gentle spirit means that this is a spirit that is not panicking. It's a spirit that is not easily provoked. It's a spirit that is not, that is not freaking out when things get freaky. This is a spirit that is aware that the Lord is near. Here's the good news. When we know the Lord is near, we know he's mighty to save and we know he's good. And if he's near, hey, who cares what's going on? The Lord is near. My spirit is gentle because the Lord is near. What did they question in the wilderness? Is God even with us anymore? And when they say, is God even with us? Then they say, did God want to kill us out here? Has he forsaken us just to kill us? Then it says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension or surpasses your mind, which is usually your biggest enemy in these cases, right? Your mind is the thing that's panicking. Your mind is the thing that's freaking out, saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? It's scampering all around. It's reaching out for every possible solution. And, and you've ever, have you ever seen a kid that doesn't quite know how to swim and it's gotten too deep in the pool? As they are drowning, what do they do? Are they helping themselves? No, they're getting more frantic. And in fact, it's one thing when it's a kid. It's, it's another thing when it's an adult. Because a drowning person will often, unless you're a strong swimmer, will drown you, right? I mean, in their attempts to save themselves, they make it worse. And this is so often what happens when we forget who our God is. And we begin to panic and we let that anxiety 
rule in our lives. It is not a sin for you to have an anxious thought. It is wrong and dangerous for you to let that thought rule you and let that thought have a home in your heart. Be anxious for nothing. What's your response? In everything, by prayer and supplication. Worry about nothing, but pray about everything. Which brings us back to that original point. Was it wrong for them to ask God for water when they had no water? No. Your trust in God doesn't mean you have to stay silent. God wants you to ask. Amen? And he wants you to ask knowing he wants to answer and will answer. The Bible says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have whatever we've asked for. Thank God for his will made known through his word. Thank God for his will made known through his spirit. Isn't that right? So here he says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Then he tells us how to do it with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And I want to just focus as we close on that word thanksgiving, how important it is. Because we want to just see where the Israelites went wrong so we don't repeat that mistake. Where'd they go wrong? Did they go wrong for wanting water when they were thirsty? No. Should they have stayed silent and silently walked through the desert saying, if God wants us to give us water, it'll magically appear in our throats? No. It was right for them to ask, I believe. I think there's nothing wrong with asking. But there's a difference between asking and thanksgiving and acting in panic and doubt. Because what happened was they allowed their need, they allowed their lack to change their view of the character and nature of God. And that's, folks, that's when they stepped into sin. Is they allowed their circumstance to change who they thought God was. Circumstances are not worthy of changing our view of God. They're not big enough to do that. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is the Eternal One. He is faithful through a thousand generations. You can't change God, right? So what does Thanksgiving do? Thanksgiving reminds your heart, reminds your mind who God is. It is impossible to stay in panic when you enter into Thanksgiving. It's impossible to stay in doubt when you enter into Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving forces you to go back to who God really is. The problem is, is that when we encounter a huge issue, and we all encounter huge issues, when we encounter this huge issue, this huge issue becomes like God to us. It becomes the biggest thing in our life. And the biggest thing in your life, it's, if it stays the biggest thing in your life, it becomes the thing you orbit around. Its gravitational pull will pull you in, and you'll orbit around it. And once you're orbiting around it, it's your God. So what we do is we come to this big thing. But when we begin to, to thank God and to praise God and to ask God for what we need with thanksgiving, that big thing, we begin to relate it to the greatness of God and it all of a sudden seems like a very small thing, doesn't it? Because the more we begin to thank God and praise God, the bigger he gets in our heart. You can't make God bigger, but you can make him bigger in your heart. Right? You make him bigger in your mind. You can't make God any bigger than he is. He's, he's infinite. But you can make him small in your heart, can't you? We make him small when we encounter a debt we don't know how it's going to get paid. A bill. 
And we say, I don't know how it's going to get paid. I guess I'm going to have to quit doing what God called me to do. And I have to do this because this is all the only answer I see instead of seeking God. We, we make God small when we allow ourselves to be offended at our brothers and sisters in Christ and put that above the fact that we are one in Christ and the love of Jesus that's flowing in us and the purpose he's called us together, knitting our hearts together in love. When we make an offense or a, 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 an issue we have with a brother or sister bigger than the, than the love of God, bigger than the covenant of Jesus Christ, bigger than the blood, bigger than the cross, then all of a sudden we've made that thing our God, our idol. And thank God we have been redeemed from idolatry. We've been bought back from panic. Thank God. Listen, this is the thing. Your mind is one of your greatest assets in following God. You may think it's your enemy. You may have warred with your mind. But once your mind becomes submitted to your spirit, it is a great tool. Just like your body is. How many of you can go out and win souls without your body? Anybody? I've heard stories of somebody kind of like being translated in the spirit. But, but, but most times, let's just say normally, you can't just sit on the couch and be like, I'm going to go preach in Africa. No, most of the time, that's just not going to happen. What God, God can do anything, but most of the time, that's not going to happen. You got to use your body, right? Your body is an enemy at times, isn't it? Your flesh wants this. Your flesh wants that. You had to learn how to put your flesh in submission. And when your flesh went in submission to God, it became a great tool of God. Same thing with your mind. God does not want a bunch of brainless Christians, a bunch of mindless followers. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, your mind, and your strength. He wants to be loved by your mind. Your mind is a tool, but your mind is a terrible boss. It's a good servant, but it's a terrible employee, employer. Great employee, bad employer. When it works for your spirit, it's a great thing. So here's what we want to close, just this thought right here. When we enter into thanksgiving, we make room for the peace of God, which passes our mind. What, what does that mean to you? You see, the Israelites, I don't think one person, I don't think one person, including Moses, had any idea that he was going to hit a rock with a stick and water was going to come out. Right? So their mind is panicking because their mind has run out of solutions. Why does the peace of God need to go past your mind? Because your mind will only be settled or satisfied when it has a solution. The peace of God bypasses your mind because it plugs you into the fact that God is faithful even when you don't see the solution. How many of you have laid awake at night just saying, just running through possibilities. What if I do this? What if I call this person? What if I go out and do this? And you're running through all these things. Uh, if I do this, if I do this. And when your mind finds no solutions, then you begin to question God. You question yourself. You question all these other things. But when the peace of God comes in, it passes your mind. And it says, you have a God that provides. You have a God that delivers. You have a God that breaks through. You have a God that saves. And though your mind has not yet seen a solution, I've got one. Now rest in me. Thanksgiving reminds us of that. It says, I didn't know back then how you'd do it, and you did it. I didn't know how you'd save me then, and you did. I didn't know how you'd heal me then, and you did. I didn't know how you'd deliver me then, and you did. I didn't know how you, you, you redeemed me from my lack and, and, and my debt, but you did. 
But thank God my mind is not greater than my God. I would not have dreamed that I could smack a rock with a stick and water would come out enough for a whole nation. But God is bigger than my solutions. He's bigger. So let's let our panic go. Amen. And let's give it back to God. Let's turn our hearts to thanksgiving. And the next time, and panic will try to set in again. We all have been there. We'll all be at that place again. But don't let it rule you. Don't let it stay longer. Don't let it, don't let it have a home in your heart. Let thanksgiving, let the peace of God rule your heart and your mind. Guard your heart and mind. That word guard is the same word that's used in the Greek when the uh, whole uh, army surrounded a city that Paul was in. They set up a garrison around a city so that no one could get in and no one could get out. That's the word that's used for guard. It's a garrison. God is setting a guard, a, a force around your heart and your mind so that nothing is going to harm it. Nothing's going to harm your faith when you set your hope on God. Amen? Let's stand up.